Hey, hey, you're listening to the Worldwide Underground. My name is Gabriel Teodros. This is episode four since the very beginning of this experiment in audio storytelling. I've been focused on artists who are using their voice right now to speak up for Palestine, for a ceasefire, for the ultimate end of the apartheid state that exists over there. My guest today is a voice who's been on the scene, active, speaking up for justice ever since I first heard him in the late 90s. We get into some of that history as this is the 25 year anniversary of his debut film, Slam. And uh, we talk a little bit about our shared history as well. I first met Saul Williams in 1999 at the third place books in Lake Forest Park. Came to find out years later that that bookstore was just blocks away from Octavia E. Butler's house. I still remember the day so clearly. I had never seen this many black people in North Seattle in my life, maybe before or since. And I met a lot of really important people in my life that night at this event for Saul Williams, including my guy Rajni Eddins, who uh, along with his mother Randy Eddins, founded a space in the Central District called the Poetry Experience. The P.E. was like this poetry circle that happened in Langston Hughes, right there in the basement, twice a month. It was where a lot of folks in our generation who, you know, didn't have spaces to really perform our rhymes, we got together at the P.E. and uh, we'll share new pieces twice a month. It's where so many of us really found our voice and cultivated our craft. I bring that up to say, Saul Williams, was there the day I met Rajni, you know? And my life has never been the same. Saul had that kind of impact on an entire generation of people who got stories like mine. So it felt like a real full circle moment having this conversation with Saul today. We talked about the film Slam, as this year marks its 25 year anniversary but also the work that Saul was doing in protest of the invasion of Iraq and Afghanistan 20 years ago, how that work still resonates today. Saul's commitment to speaking up for Palestine and also his more recent work, Neptune Frost and the Martyr Loser King Project, which shines a light on the ongoing genocide and the atrocities happening in the Congo how all this is connected and more. I really wanted to have a podcast where we could just nerd out about music and storytelling and shine a light on all the underheard stories because it all matters. But this right here is what we do art for. If it's not to save lives, then why are any of us using our voices, right? This is a continuation of the work I was trying to do on KEXP and it's a completely independent project so I just want to thank everyone who's already subscribed over on the Substack. if this podcast is brand new to you but you like what you hear and want to support it tap in gabrielteodros.substack.com it's the best way to support all the storytelling projects that we've got going on with no further ado 
Let's get into this episode. The one and only, the legend, Saul Williams, right here on the Worldwide Underground. Let's get it. Hey, hey, it's the Worldwide Underground. I am joined today by a legend, someone who I've known pretty much since I started in music, uh, the one and only Saul Williams. Hey, man, how are you? I'm good. Thank you for joining. Um, <laughs> I wanted to go back in time because I feel like there's a lot of echoes of things that were happening you know, back in the late 90s, early 2000s that are still very relevant now. And um, yeah, I wanted to go back, if you don't mind, to um, to ask you, do you remember when we first met? <laughs> um, well, I believe that it must have been via Jonathan Moore or it Peace. Before, it was before that even. It was before that even. So are you saying that we met at Youth Speaks or Brave New Voices? Before, well... At Bumbershoot? Before that. It was it was a book. It was... You were touring with the She oh, book. Oh, wow. In, in 1999. So then and the you, answer is no. Yeah. I don't remember. <laughs> I do remember touring with that book. And that was just before. I mean, that was literally a few months before I came back to Seattle right. for Bumbershoot. Yeah, and you came with the band and just killed yes. it. I, yeah, yes, yes, yes. Yeah, I was there too. That that night that you came with the book though in 1999, it was um a really really important night in my life, man, cuz it was 99. I had just moved back to Seattle from Las Vegas. Mm. And um you know, your film, uh Slam, reached me when I was in high school. And um and uh High school was a really hard time for me. There was a lot of like conflicts that were going on. And um, I don't want to get too much into it, but I do want to tell you that the scene in Slam where you are uh, in the middle of the courtyard, you know, yeah. some pe people are trying to jump you and you just bust into a poem and it kind of like deads the conflict. Yeah. I actually did that in life, <laughs> inspired by your film. And you got me out of a, a couple like tight situations, man. So thank yeah, you for yeah, that. Yeah. You know, I hear um, you, bro. Yeah. That scene itself got me out of a tight situation um, because that scene is as real as it is, you know, performed. Um, wow. Because all of the prisoners didn't know that we were shooting the film. Um, oh, wow. Yeah. And so, and we only had an hour to shoot that one scene and the warden would only agree to releasing those 150 prisoners for one hour and she didn't tell them we were shooting a film so they um only 16 prisoners knew that i was an actor um the 150 others did not know um they saw cameras following me and assumed that i was some snitch that had agreed to allow a news team to follow me um and on my first day in prison um, mm. And so when when some people saw the prisoners who were working with um, walking towards me as if they were about to jump me, a bunch of other people we were not working with followed them like, yeah, let's get this fool. And um, and the poem worked. <laughs> wow. <laughs> so, yeah, I hear you. That's ill. Huh. You know, I didn't even think about the fact that, you know, you were filming in a real prison at the time. Um was there ever any contact with folks who were inside while you were filming? After? Of course. Yeah. Did, like, of what course. did, what did, fact, what did, 
what did people think about the film after? Like, what was those conversations like, you know? Well, let me tell you the story of, of, of two brothers um, who are in the film. Um, their names are Mamalu Stewart and Halim Flowers. And Mamalu, you'll definitely remember because Mamalu, who was 16 at the time when we shot mm. Slam in DC jail, um, he was serving 75 to life. In fact, he was serving two life sentences. And um, at 16, he had been sentenced. And there, I had met him the day before uh, we, we ended up shooting a scene with him. I heard him rap. Like I, I entered a cypher with, with him and some other dudes who were, you know, on lockdown there. And, um, and I was so impressed with him that I begged the director, like, can we shoot a scene with him? And so the next morning, yes, I remember this there's scene. a scene where yeah. I'm put into my cell next to a guy who starts making a beat on the table and rapping yeah. and I, and the camera pans back and forth between his cell and mine. And we kind of freestyle together. That dude is Mama Lou Stewart. And two years ago, because of the law that Obama changed when he was in office that said that it was now illegal um, to have charged juveniles with adult sentences via the Innocence Project, he was released. And so Mama Lou Stewart is now free, along with another brother who you don't see so much in the film, but you see in the documentary that the director Mark Levin did called mm. Thug Life uh, there in the same prison called Halim Flowers. Um, Mama Lou is, is a rapper and Halim is a visual artist, Halim Flowers. You can find them both on Instagram. They uh -huh. both served 22 years wow. locked up and just got out two years ago. Wow. And... Since this is the 25 year anniversary of Slam, Mamalu came with us to Sundance where we celebrated it this past year and saw the film on the big screen for the first time. Wow. So, yeah. Um, yeah. And we had been in touch all along, you know. Um, so, it's, it's, so yes, we have been in touch with brothers who, who were, you know, um, in the film, who were locked up at that time. And and the good news is that Mama Lou Stewart and Halim Flowers are free and thriving as artists and people that now go back into the prisons to communicate with prisoners um, and and go speak to students and um, and are a part of you know the uh, the the criminal justice reform and abolitionist movements. So yes, I'm That's glad beautiful. you asked about that. Nah, that's beautiful. And thank you for sharing that story. I actually was going to ask a question about the the 25 year anniversary of SLAM because you shared a video of uh, that event at Sundance that moved me to yeah. tears. You know, that video. The dude and what, sitting beside me is Mama, is Mama Lou. Lou. Yeah. yeah. I remember, I remember that, yeah. but I, but I was wondering because I, I saw him in the video and I couldn't place where he was in the video. So you just explained all of it. Yeah. Like, yeah. That, yeah, that the scene that he's in is my favorite part of, of, of the film Slam. I, I remember, remember it so clearly. I saw the film. Yeah. And the first time I saw the film, I hadn't seen earlier edits. I only had one question, which was, did that scene make it? Mm. And when I saw that camera pan between me and him, I was like, I'm good. Was it completely good. was it completely improvised as well, that scene? Hundred percent. Ew. Ew. Yeah. 100%. Yeah. You've made you've been a part of so many films now. Like how often is it that 
improvisation makes it onto the screen? Because it seems like that would be really rare. Well, it's hard to say. I mean, mm. in my mind, I haven't been a part of a lot of films, not as many okay. as I thought I would be a part of, because, you know, I studied as an actor. I, I, I did like slam was really like my, uh, my thesis project when I was in graduate school for acting at NYU. Um, I did it right after, or, or I started it during my third year, my final year of, of my MFA. And and my dream was to act. I had no interest in writing. I had no interest in writing poetry. I had no interest in making... I mean, I had done those things as a teenager. I didn't think that making music and poetry would actually carry me perhaps even more than acting because I had mm. spent my entire childhood acting and studying acting. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm like, yeah, I've been able to act a little bit, but it's weird because acting is my first love and and I've spent way more time with poetry and music um, right. since, since slam. And, but that's also because of choices, right? Because, um, you know, I, I've also not really been so interested in perpetuating, you know, like norms in terms of choices, in terms of jobs that come, but also because of the lack of the imagination of the industry who would listen to someone who talks like me and be like, well, we need someone that's a little more hood. And I'm like, uh, I'm from the hood. So right. Cats like me, actually. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I understand you're looking for a caricature. Exactly. But if you want to, like, truly represent the hood, you might as well use me. I'm, mm -hmm. I'm you know, a product of as much as anyone else. Mm -hmm. And so it's been interesting. We'll leave it at that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I can I can only imagine, you know. One of one of my biggest uh inspirations in in storytelling in all forms is is Haile Garima, you know, who Boom. talk who talks so much about, you know, yeah, his struggles with Hollywood and making yeah. films by black audiences for black audiences and all the challenges and yeah, I can I can only imagine, brother. Yeah, <laughs> like, it, it, it takes a lot, you know, Haile Garima comes from, you know, mm -hmm. that 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 kind of LA rebellion, that 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 moment of yeah. of of directors that came out of um, UCLA, um, him and Julie Dash, and you know, and Bill Gunn, and, and all of these amazing yeah. artists that that have this ethos and and this understanding of the the role of art, the role of cinema, and the power of it. And uh, and so yeah, you know, I have big love for him. I, I love I love uh, what his son has done as well. I don't know if you've kept up. Yeah. Oh, he's 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 on deck to be on this podcast. Oh, yeah, Marawi yeah, yeah, Marawi yeah. Garima is is either next yeah. week or the week after. So yes, exactly. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. I'm very grateful for for Harry Garima. Yeah, me too, brother. Um, since. Yeah, just uh, just on the topic of slam, um, and that that video that you shared from Sundance, like it, it really moved me to tears, brother. And it and it and it reminded me like why we do everything we do, you know. Um, I was wondering if you can share like what what that movie means to you now. Well, considering the fact that you know, slam is is primarily about you know the the horrors and the hypocrisy within the criminal justice system in the U.S. And 
it's distinguished primarily because not only because of poetry and the fact that it introduced so much of the world to slam poetry, um, but also because of the discussion surrounding criminal justice, which at that time um, you needed to turn to, you know, certain figures like Angela Davis or, you know, other more activists than, than you would find in entertainment, you know? Um, and, and, and my character goes to prison in that film because of weed which is now legal mm-hmm. in so many states, right? Um, there's, so what, what I appreciate about that film is, is the sort of forecast that it provided in terms of the cultural discussions, you know, um, surrounding not only hip hop, because the film sounds like a mixtape, you know, like we can discuss it on that level, you know, we can discuss it in terms of who's on the soundtrack, which is wild, yeah. right? <laughs> I have, <laughs> I have the, I have the vinyl of the yeah, soundtrack. Yeah. I mean, yeah. <laughs> we don't, they don't really do like, well, maybe now, like Black Panther brought that, that kind yes. of like that type of soundtrack, but for the era, yeah, it's crazy who's mm-hmm. on that soundtrack. Um, it's crazy the topics we're able to touch on. Um. And, and the realness with which we're able to do it, that we're in a real prison, um, that we're, that we're, you know, talking, you know, about real things involving, uh, our community. And, and, and like I said, it's, I, I, for me, who would have just as easily, you know, ended up in, in any film that I had been cast in, I'm grateful for having been cast in a film like that. Okay. And, and as I say that, I'm reminded of the fact that I wasn't initially cast in that film. The director saw me at a poetry reading and tried to hire me simply as a writer. Wow. I was not supposed to be in it. Hmm. Bones Malone was supposed to play the lead role. Bones is still in the film. He plays the role of Hoffa. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, Bones Malone was supposed to play the lead role. He had a relationship with the director, Mark Levin. And I remember telling Mark Levin, like, I'm in school for acting. I write as a hobby. Um, I don't know if I have the capacity to write a screenplay, um, but I do know that I have the capacity to be in front of that camera. Mm-hmm. And um, and after you know a bit of time, it was agreed upon that I would play the role that I was helping to create. Um, but yeah, I I uh, I remember thinking it was unfair, actually. Mm. Because my acting role models, I'm like, I, I, you know, I decide I want to be an actor maybe after I saw Jack Nicholson in The Shining or something like that. Okay. You know what I'm saying? I yeah. was like, you know, I don't recall you all asking Jack Nicholson to write his screenplays. I don't recall you asking Sidney Poitier to write his screenplays or Paul Robeson to write his screenplays. Or da, 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 da. Like, why do I have to write the thing? I just want to be cast. That was my mind state. Wow. <laughs> Wow. And and it's true that Jack Nicholson has written screenplays actually, and and so has Sidney Poitier, and so does But yeah, um, I was as a fresh student then, I, who was only thinking of acting. I was a little surprised. So the film means a lot to me, um, also because we're still talking about it, but also because of the effect that it had on poetry. Yeah, major. And there are a generation. There is a generation of of poets, more than one at this point, Mm -hmm. um, inspired 
and influenced by that film, which reminded people that poetry was not simply um, a place where we celebrated the dead right. and the past. And so what I recall from that film and then from touring afterwards and what have you was the number of English teachers and professors who would show up at shows or people who became English teachers and professors and who were like, yo, my students used to fall asleep in class. I found something to wake them up. Mm. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, it's crucial. Just hearing you talk about it, like... It brings me back to to being in high school, and you know, I went to I went to six different high schools. You know, I was somebody oh, that oh my gosh, I was some <laughs> I was somebody that just got kicked out of school after school. Like I remember one school I got kicked out of literally for not standing up for the flag. You know, um, oh word, and, um, yeah, I didn't stand up for the flag. I told my kids not to stand up for the flag. Yeah. I remember I had to write my daughter a note. <laughs> right, yeah, but you know that that. It was that film and a few other things that kind of like helped give language to what I was experiencing. Like I was experiencing like so many people like, you know, what happens when the school is a pipeline to prison, you know, and Hello. I was, yeah, no. And, and, uh, I remember Sonia Song's character, like there were some things that she said in that film where, you know, she came in and, and saw people's humanity. Like I remember, I could like it's been years since I've watched that film, you know. Um, but I remember just feeling seen, you know, and 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 yeah. there were some of her scenes that really moved me to tears, you know, and it it, it helped give language oh, yeah. and it helped me give too. me give me hope, you know. Yeah, her so. performance is is extraordinary, and I'll never, you know, there's that monologue she delivers to the actual prisoners who That's do a little poetry reading within the film and and she's conducting a workshop. She conducted a workshop in the prison while we were shooting the film. And mm. she did that because in her real life at that time, she was conducting poetry workshops at Rikers Island. Um, mm. And she has that line where she goes, freedom isn't out there. Freedom pointing to her heart, she says, is in mm -hmm. here. Never mm -hmm. give anyone the power to take away your freedom. The yeah. gems like that is what where I'm like, okay, no, the film is because that's all you want of a film is for it to carry gems so that wherever or whenever someone in their life finds it, you know that they will be more than entertained, they will be fed. Yeah. Absolutely. You know? Yeah. Yeah. No, that that's was... that's the sign of, of, of a gem for me is that, you know, it whenever you encounter it whenever you're ready in your life. We have mm -hmm. no control over that. A few people saw it in, in cinemas, mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. Many people discovered it on some weird night, you know, like, oh, yeah, I'm going to check this out. And mm -hmm. then we're like, oh. <laughs> oh, yeah. I feel like my life changed, too. You know what's crazy, too, is I remember having a, a book that was published of the whole screenplay. Yeah, yeah. I don't even know where that book is anymore. I would love to have another copy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's around because I was just uh, I was just hanging out with the director uh, a month ago, and he had a few copies of that book, mm -hmm, which I hadn't mm -hmm. seen in a minute either. It exists. It exists. Yeah. <laughs> um. So, 
so another another thing that we lived through, you know, um, and I mean, it's 9-11, right? So slam is before, you know, 9-11 happened. Our whole world changed. The war on terror began and has never stopped because you can't fight terrorism with terrorism. It's just right. it's such a, a wild idea. It doesn't make any sense. Um, and it feels like history is repeating itself right now with Gaza. And I'm seeing, um, and I'm sure you are too, your poem, uh, Not In Our Name, being used again. And it feels just as relevant in 2023 as it did in 2001. Um, I it was, was hoping- 2003, yeah. Was it 2003? Wow, so 20 well, yeah, years. The Pledge to Resist um, is from 2003, but yeah, 9-11 is 2001. And I, I'll never forget 9-11 because I started writing a poem on that day. Mm-hmm. Um, a poem that I worked on for four years or three years, and that became um, Said the Shotgun to the Head. Yeah. Wow. Wow. And which was a response to that. Mm-hmm. And the Pledge to Resist was, you know, around that same time, was during that time period. Um, yeah. You know, What's crazy about September 11th, especially in relation to the the response to October 7th and, you know, mm-hmm. that sense of, of, yes, we can fully mourn all innocent life loss without question, without question. I lost uh, friends and family on September 11th. Mm-hmm. Um, but what I will say is that not one day um, did I <laughs> forget or neglect to consider the role that America plays as an, as an imperialist bully and terrorist state-sponsored globally, um, not one day mm-hmm. did I question why or how did this happen. I knew exactly why and how. Um, and not one minute did I think I could trust my government's response um not for a second not for a second and this is as a kid who like you said grew up never fucking pledge excuse me yeah never uh pledging can, the flag can, or singing you can cuss. an anthem you know. okay cool yeah. <laughs> um <laughs> you know what i'm saying mm-hmm. um i grew up in a household where my mom told me when I was like five or six, you know, like, yes, I had the police talk, but I also had the talk of like, if they ever invoke a draft, we're moving to Canada. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. like, um, I grew up with more than a healthy distrust of what this nation represents and stands for both foreign and domestic, mm-hmm. you know? Um, and I say that with having like 
six uncles that are in the army. <laughs> mm. You know, mm-hmm. I also know that why my community is in the army was not because we were patriotic. We joined the army because it was the only way out, right? That's right. Mm-hmm. We joined the army because it's the only way to get benefits, the only way to pay for college, the only way to, you know, be able to support and provide for a family, the only way to purchase a house, all of these things. That's the how army. this whole system was set up. And they prey you know? on our community too. The army prays that's how, on of us. Of course, that's how they prey on our community mm-hmm. because the whole, like, you know, like they don't believe in socialism. So the so 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 all those socialist benefits arrive if you join the armed right. forces. Right. Then suddenly you can experience that. And mm-hmm. you know, Israel is crazier than that, right? Because I've and I've been, huh? Yeah. I need to be clear on the fact that I, I've been to Israel, I've been in the West Bank, I've been in Palestine, I've seen it, I've seen the apartheid, I've seen the signs that say Jewish only roads, mm. right? Mm. I've spoken to the kids both who went into the IOF and the ones who lied about their mental health or what have you to avoid it, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And I know that every kid in Israel um, at the age of 17 or 18 has to go into that army and serve two to three years. Right. Regardless, I've been at those checkpoints and seen those teenagers with guns. I've had those guns pointed at me in Israel. I've been 20 minutes outside of Tel Aviv in Palestine, in Benin, in mm-hmm. the places where you're like, oh my God, the world suddenly changed. I'm in a different country. It feels the same way that's like when you drive from San Diego to Tijuana. Mm-hmm. You cross that border and you're like, holy crap. And then you realize that no one in Tel Aviv has ever been across that thing unless they did it serving time. I've seen the soldiers standing on the, the tanks pointing guns at the kids playing soccer. I saw kids, I mean, one the first sight I saw was like, come on, you guys did this for me. I saw kids barefoot playing soccer with spent uh, US made grenades. Mm, mm, mm. Literally. The type of thing that maybe I would try to sit back and write. Yeah. But I didn't have to because I just was like, okay, this is too much. This is too literal, guys. Yes, too much. Can we get more abstract? I don't need to see you guys playing soccer with spent grenades and see the guys pointing, you know, these machine guns at us over this fence. Like, this is a little wild. You're growing up in a a prison. It's also a war zone. Like Hello? Yeah. And those grenades had been marked illegal already by the Israeli Supreme Court. But they were being used, mm-hmm. right? Those yeah. were tear gas canisters. Wow! The grenade-looking tear gas. I remember them from. I remember them from uh, the protests against the WTO. They used it on us in the. Oh, you yeah. remember that when Ferguson happened, the Palestinian mm-hmm. kids writing the activists saying, "Hey, this is how you protect yourself from tear gas." That's right. Yep. Right. Yep. And what I was are, friends with the some the the Palestinian activists who lived in Ferguson yeah. who mysteriously died after the protest there. Yeah, man, rest in peace, Boston. The first note is go ahead, go ahead. No, I'm just saying the connections to be made are real. Mm-hmm. Um, the conversations to be had are crucial. Um, I think that you know we live in a place where, you know, I'm sitting, I'm reporting to you, you know, live from, you know, um, Shumash, Ish, and Tongva land, right? Mm -hmm. In California. That's Mm -hmm. where I'm speaking to you from. 
Mm-hmm. Of course, I'm representing the 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 modern day act of making land acknowledgments, right? Mm-hmm. And in the discussion of the indigenous population of Israel that has been quarantined and forced to live under an apartheid occupation. I think it's crucial that we remember the same way that we are acknowledging, you know, the land that we're on, that there needs to be acknowledgments. It's true that there has been an educational curve in the past month, right? Not everybody understood or fully recognized what happened in 1948. There were a lot of lies told. There were a lot of things hidden. Um, Mm -hmm. One of the documentaries I had watched recently was one called Tantura, Mm. which you can find, you know, on Prime or what have you, Tantura is something uh, you can rent. You can find it somewhere else and maybe you can hack it. I don't know who we're boycotting these days. (laughs) Yeah. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? Yeah, T A N T U R A. Okay. Um, of course, you know, for those that know, you know, for the younger crowd, they're just you. All the information is on TikTok. Yeah, yeah. I feel like I feel like the the young people in Palestine in Gaza who are documenting it for themselves is like the thing that makes this so just in your face unavoidable like no this no, is the most beautiful and necessary know? thing about this moment is that i don't need to hear the lies and propaganda coming from the president's mouth no who would try to cloud the number of deaths or what have you. Right. When I'm literally here with Motaz and Bissan and Noor mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. Moab and, yeah. you know, Priesta and all of these people. I'm like, come on now. Yeah. I, I, I see. Yeah. I, I, I can see. Right. I'm here <laughs> with you. And this is, of course, the part of technology that they do everything to control that they had not considered, (laughs) you know, I mean, just in 2018, when, um, when there was that peace march, you know, there was that extraordinary activist, um, I'm blanking on his name, um, but you can look it up. There was a peace march in 2018 Mm. where an extraordinary Palestinian activist, along with hundreds um, and then thousands of other uh, Palestinians decided to peacefully walk to the wall. Mm. And the IOF Mm-mm. fired. Wow. Over 200 people were killed. Mm-hmm. Um, over 6,000 people were injured. Um. There is such a crazy history. And even now, I mean, the only reason why we're talking about this, right, unfortunately, is because of the the acts that occurred on October 7th, which says yeah. a lot, which is yeah. crazy. 
But yeah. that's the only reason why we're talking about Palestine. At this level, with all these people. You're right. Yeah. You're right. I was, that was, it kind of gets to, to a question I was going to ask you was, so with, you know, with the anti-war movements that we saw happen, you know, when the U.S. was invading Iraq and Afghanistan, you know, you were a part of and you saw all of that and you're in this moment now. Are there any lessons that you think we can draw from the anti-war movements then that are applicable now? Lessons and or mistakes. Well, you know, I, 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 it's hard to put myself in the, in the seat of people who trust the government in, in those regards, mm -hmm. who, who, who look at America imperialism and, and wave a flag. Um, right. I don't know nothing about that really. So, so in terms of lessons, the lesson then was speak up, mm -hmm. you know? So at that moment of saying, not in our name, mm -hmm. um, that was the epiphany really of the moment was to say, was to distinguish the acts of the government from the will of the people and to make that distinction known mm -hmm. to other people and to the government. Mm -hmm. And by the time George Bush went down. Mm -hmm. By the time, you know, documentarians like Michael Moore made their, you know, statements and all that stuff. I mean, don't forget, Michael Moore was booed mm -hmm. when he spoke up at the academies or what have you. Like, a lot of people were not courageous. They'll act now like they were against right. it. Right. But if you look at the people booing, mm -hmm. Michael Moore, when he spoke up against the president in a public forum, mm -hmm. you know, or Kanye, mm -hmm. when, when he spoke up, mm -hmm. the people who feigned shock, like, oh, my God, <laughs> right. how could you, you know? Mm -hmm. um, I just think the lesson learned is, is let's not wait 20 years to acknowledge a wrong that mm -hmm. we know is wrong when it's happening. Right. Let's know it and stop it, abbreviate it. Now mm -hmm. we have to shift paths. So Palestine is doing us a favor, right? When those of us who vote, for example, and if you voted like, you know, like myself, you know, I was eager to see Trump get out of office, right? So I, I did that Biden thing. I was like, no, 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 I don't need to see this dude gone. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I need to see that gone. Mm -hmm. And then you see this malevolent spirit. Yeah. Cheering on death. I know. I go, well, okay. And you see not just him, but you see Chuck Schumer, you see Hakeem, you know what I'm saying? You see those people standing with, and you're like, oh, okay. Yeah. The majority and you see of the people who, who want to mm -hmm. quiet the progressives. Mm -hmm. You know, I see that opening for that third party. Oh, yeah. <laughs> big time. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I also see the, 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 the ability that we may or may not have to pressure this 
you know, very hard headed party into realizing that that can't be their ticket. Mm -hmm. But I know that I can't vote for anybody who hasn't already said ceasefire now. Absolutely. If it took you this long to come to that. We're not on the same team. Games. Yeah, we're not on Genocide the same team. team. Exactly. We're not on the same team. You know what I'm saying? Not mm -hmm. at all. Mm -hmm. So all these lessons learned are like, because I remember if you really want to get into lessons learned, mm. I remember the second term of Bush. Bruh, before you get into this, this is yeah. wild. I was at your show in Seattle. You talking, remember what I said? Talking shit with Ishmael in the back. It was the first time I ever met Ish and I didn't recognize uh -huh. him. And it was that night. And I remember I was just fucking heated. I don't remember what you said because I was in my own feelings, just in disbelief. Yeah. But please remind me because I remember being at your show that night. <laughs> so that second term, right? Mm -hmm. Is that the one with... um? Uh, what's his name? The guy who they say invented the internet <laughs> playfully. Um, you know, where they announced Homeboy won. And then they said that he didn't win. Did they do? Well, yeah, because I think in both instances, Bush won the Electoral College, but not the popular vote. Right. Yeah. Right. I'm blanking on Homeboy's name. That he ran against? Yeah. Oh, uh, it wasn't Gore. It was uh, yeah, it's Al Gore. It's Al Gore. Was it Al Gore? Okay, yeah, yeah. I remember at the time having gone through the craziness with his first term and feeling like, and, and it's so crazy because I hear so many people say it now, but I remember thinking and saying it then, twenty years ago, which was that, oh, okay, we're facing white supremacy, and 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 all of these cats are coming to the surface, and it's better that we see it come out. I remember thinking as kind of like a provocateur, like I'm questioning whether I should even vote for Bush. Mm. Not because I like this fool at all, but because I want to see more of y'all come out of the closet and show your true faces. <laughs> That's where I was then. So mm -hmm. the lesson learned now is I would not tell anyone to vote for Trump. Mm -mm. Ever. No. But I can't vote for a genocider either. At all. <laughs> and if that splits the vote, I mean, we can be as hopeful as we want and say, oh my gosh, is this the first time we're going to see a third party candidate win? Okay, we could talk about that. Or we can be hopeful and say, oh my gosh, is the Democratic Party going to get our message and put somebody else on the ticket? And da -da 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 -da. we can believe that. I don't believe it. Um, or we can say, I can't vote for that guy. I'm going to do this. And I know that the ramifications are going to be that the person on that ticket, who I'm not going to vote for, is going to win. It's a it's hard horrendous decisions. It's a hard decision, but I'm right there with you. And I, I, yeah. I think I, I said it publicly. I was like, anybody that, you know, hasn't already pushed for a ceasefire right now that's an elected official does not deserve your vote. You that's know, true. That's just, true. That's where they, we're at. They just don't. And I feel like they really need to, like, there needs to be some kind of justice. There needs to be some kind of accountability. And they don't deserve, like, 
Yeah, they need and to, so they then need, the question they need is, to what feel does this. it take to change they, the question? What does need, it take to change the country? What does it take to change the parties? What does it take to change mm-hmm. the system? What does it take? And so, you know, if that means for four years I got to fight the police, I'm used to that. Yeah. I don't know, you know? how different this is, honestly. You know? The police were trained by the Israeli, you know, mm-hmm. forces before. Now. Right, right. And right. Uh, w- and what they're doing. In, and those uh, Israeli forces co- look foolish. They don't look co- triumphant. They look nah. foolish and cowardly with their yeah. airstrikes and what have you. They're cowardly as hell. And what they're doing in Cop City in Atlanta is absolutely exactly. is absolutely based on what they're doing out there in Palestine. Like it's so Hello. connected, you know. So Hello. Yeah. Hello. And I'm from New York. I see, you know, and I live in LA. I see the LAPD and I see the NYPD. All mm-hmm. of it is connected. Right, right. You know? Yeah. Absolutely. All of man. these fools are connected. Mm-hmm. Um and you know the motto. Ain't nothing changed in those regards. It's <laughs> nah. FT. All so. day, <laughs> all day, all day, oh. <laughs> all day, all day. So, so hey, what are we gonna do? You know what yeah. I'm saying? So, in terms of lessons learned, no, <laughs> I would not tempt the system by voting for a white supremacist, and I would not, you know, tempt the system by voting for a white supremacist genocide. You yeah. know what I'm saying? Like I, I, I. I am, we are, you know, that rock and hard place mm-hmm. is so real. Mm-hmm. And it's all connected, right? Because I know you haven't gone there yet, but I'll make the connections for you, right? We want to talk about Congo. We want to talk about Sudan. We want to talk about the connections between all of these things. That was that was my next question. Absolutely. Right? Because also that's Neptune Frost. That that's was and what, that was also the next that, question. That's yes, exactly what what that film yes um, is about. Right? Yes, extraction and people are making and, the connections. And you've been you've been very you've been so outspoken and consistent speaking about the Congo for all these years. So yeah, please please talk about that. Well, I yeah. mean th- that that film is about what it's about anti colonialism, right? Decolonizing, you know, perspectives, mm-hmm. um, realizing that we are the technology. Yes, that um, that the the realities of extraction don't even start with modern day technology. You know, mm-hmm. we got to be really clear. It's a, it's way longer than that. You mm-hmm. know, I mean, here I'll get I'll make this breakdown as brief as possible. Right, the word robot comes from um, the Slavic language. It means slave. Robot means slave. Mm-hmm. Okay, um, or forced labor. So that enslaved Africans were, in in a sense, they were trying to make enslaved Africans robots by cutting mm-hmm. them off from their language, their culture, right? Mm-hmm. And just work from can't see in the morning to can't see at night. When we moved from the plantation system to the industrial age, right? They took everything that they learned from the plantation system into the industrial age. I'm talking about from hand labor to machine labor. This is why when you talk to a mechanic or engineer and they open up your car hood or your computer or in the music studio, they'll explain everything to you, your camera. They'll explain the engine to you in terms of that's the master, that's the slave, because the plantation system is built into the 
industrial age. It's built into the machine. That's how they understood the machine. I need this many slaves and this many overseers. I need less overseers than I need slaves. I need these parts to work and this part to control it. That's why even in computer programming, they would call it, they changed the name now, but it was initially called master-slave programming, 0101. That, it all breaks down into what they learned from the plantation system. Wow, that's right. Okay. I never even connected that, but I always heard that language for sure. Yeah. That's what it is, bro. Mm -hmm. That's what it is. And when we talk about the Congo, we're not talking about what's happening simply right now, Colton and Cobalt. Yeah, 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 yeah. But you have to understand that the invention of the plane and the bicycle and the car is all at the same moment. It's all at the same moment. And all of those things, what they have in common is not wings, but wheels. And for those wheels to roll, they needed the discovery of this thing called rubber. And the rubber for your tires funded a genocide in the Congo. Hmm. Under King Leopold of Belgium, where mm -hmm. over 10 million Congolese people died. Now, that is from about 1880 mm -hmm. to 1920. So, this is after slavery right. in the United States. This is to say that Congo had already experienced another genocide beforehand with the slave trade. Right. Right? Right. People don't talk about the impact of the slave trade on Africa as much as they need to. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. I mean, and 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 the Congolese it's, it's very particular, right? You had mm -hmm. the Soto rebellion, rebellion mm -hmm. in South Carolina mm -hmm. where laws were passed against bringing in any more slaves from the Congo because they were known to rebel. Look it up, wow. the Soto SOTO rebellion. Wow. Okay. Where they use drums to call forth other enslaved Africans and rebel. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And after that, they pass a law. No more slaves from the Congo. Wow. So, and now people want to talk about NPCs, right? Um, that's what they had tried to make us <laughs> in the plantation system. That's what the robot is. Hmm. That's the zero that stand next to the one in binary coding. Right, right. It's it's that. So the connection to be made between not only, I mean, like we could talk about a lot of stuff, right? We can talk about the yeah. Israeli investment in the mining trade. I mean, like, you know, you started in 1991, but I remember when I was a teenager, in the late 80s mm -hmm. and my sister coming home from Fisk University and saying, hey, we're boycotting Coca-Cola, Reebok, da -da -da. why? It's like, because they're invested in South Africa. Yeah, my, my mom was like, we're not, we're not getting gas from Shell no more because of South and Africa. Shell, exactly. And I so remember we were that. boycotting stuff mm -hmm. in the mid late 80s because of apartheid then. That's right. Right then. And, mm -hmm. with the, and at that time, we were also boycotting Israel. Mm. We were boycotting Israel because of the fact that the only country that did not put sanctions on Israel was, I mean, on South Africa. On South Africa, yeah. Was Israel. Mm -hmm. And Israel had, because nobody was buying stuff from South Africa, 
Israel decided to be the middle person then and would sell the South African gold, would sell all of the, the minerals or what have you from South Africa to the world so that you could feel like you're not getting it from South Africa, you're getting it from Israel, but Israel was getting it from South Africa then. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So that government, and we're talking about governments, right? We're not talking about people. We need to be really yeah. clear. The same way that I make the distinction of like, not in our name was to say, you know, the actions of our government are not the actions necessarily of the people. And I believe that to be true about Israel as well, right? I know that there is a left wing um, in Israel, even though that's not the wing that is in power. I know that there have been eight months of... of um, People of, have been protesting there too. Protesting it, against the government and, the, and what happened. And the risks are so much higher for them. Like they, you get, the, you the, get lo locked up for liking a post out there and people still exactly, protesting. So, exactly. Yeah. In this so-called, you know, democracy of the Middle East, right? Mm -hmm. um, so I know that that's very real. And, and, and I don't want to shortchange the fact that there are people speaking up there, here, and all around the world. I just want to say that apartheid is wrong anywhere. Anywhere. Right? Mm -hmm. It's wrong here in America. Mm -hmm. It's wrong anywhere. And once again, we ain't free until everybody's free. Absolutely. That's how it works. Absolutely. You know? And that yeah. goes for, you know, the gender discussion. Yes. That goes for race discussion, religion discussion, right? Absolutely. That goes for all of these discussions, we are not free until everyone is. And for and so still, you know, freestyling on your question of what was learned. Off the what? off the lessons. Yeah. Of, uh, yeah. <laughs> of back then. I know. It's yeah. it's it's so much. It's so many. Um I mean on the topic of of, of martyr loser king. And yeah. and Neptune Frost and even the uh, dance performance that I saw you do in Seattle, I think earlier this yeah, year. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. It's it's like you've been. I love this whole project because it's it's like many different sides of one story, yeah, that you've been telling across many different mediums now for years, you know, and and you've been so consistent. Um, with the messaging about, you know, we are the technology. And, and I remember you saying that, like, you know, yeah. you're, not, you're not impressed by technology that's based on analog oppression. You know, it's it's right. it's exactly it's, modern it's day so technology, real. digital technology is based on analog exploitation. Yeah. Can you, it is. Can, can you can you kind of break down like where where this story for Martin Luther King started that you've been telling across all these different mediums? Like where where did it start from? Really you and, it's yeah. really, really easy. So. Um, my wife Anesia and I, and we're the co-directors of Neptune Frost, right? We, mm -hmm. um, we were working together as actors, um, in a, a film that was shot in Senegal called Aujourd'hui. Mm -hmm. Um, and the director of this film, a Senegalese director named Alan Gomis is, is he's the dude that introduced us, right? Mm -hmm. Um, and we were shooting the film in Senegal and, and this is in, uh, 20... 10, okay. I want to say. Um, and while we were there, we learned about Colton. Mm -hmm. Well, it starts like this. I saw a kid after school in Dakar, Senegal, one day. 
right? Mm-hmm. And he had on Beats headphones. He had a smartphone. And he was sitting in front of his house building a drum. And because the drum culture, sambar, the, the, the community like dance and drum competitions are very much a part of Senegalese culture to this day, right? Mm-hmm. Very playfully, like drum will start playing and everybody comes to where it's coming from and the drummers are there and the dancers and it's a d- kind of a competition between the drummers and the dancers. It's like the drummers versus the dancers and right. the drummers are there like, and they're, and the drummers are, and the dancers are catching every stop and every break. And like, it's like, oh, whoever does it best, like, you know, who can, you know, psych somebody out? Are, are the drummers mm-hmm. going to psych out the dancers? Are the dancers going to psych out the drummers? All this type of stuff. So I saw a teenager after school building a drum with a smartphone and, 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 and beats headphones, you know, which is to say the, the most modern technology of the time mm-hmm. and this ancient technology of the drum. And it was at that moment that I had the epiphany of like, actually, the drum is the first form of wireless communication. Yeah. And that epiphany brought on the discussion where someone had said, well, yeah, you know, because we went, we were in this market. We went to this market in, in Dakar and we saw computer parts for sale like motherboards and all this stuff. And someone had pointed out that like, well, you know, you've seen the, the e-waste camps. I, I had no idea what an e-waste camp was. Mm. I looked online and I realized that there are village sized places where our tech goes to die. Cause you know, the new iPhone or the new whatever comes out and you want to get the new one. So you jet your old one. And those old computer parts are all brought to these places where, um, where where people still take the time to take them apart to pull apart the the, the platinum the uranium the, co- the the things that are still usable mm-hmm. within these devices these old devices and so there are village size areas on the continent in China where you'll see pile and it's all set up right you'll see piles of motherboards and piles of wires and piles of monitors and piles of you know like all this stuff. Mm-hmm. keyboards and all this type of stuff. Mm-hmm. And I learned about that, the e-waste camps, at mm-hmm. the same time that I learned about Colton and Cobalt. Wow. And learned that, in fact, a lot of these mines were close to these e-waste camps so that the planes from wherever that were coming in with the e-waste were going out with the minerals and resources to make more tech. And from there, that opened a can of worms in terms of just learning and unpacking information about how modern day tech is made. And so that's one part of the story. Mm -hmm. The other part of the story is that, so Anisia is from Rhonda and The other thing was that through her, I had met a number of people who, in Rhonda and from Rhonda, who were either survivors of mm. 1994, the genocide mm-hmm. against the Tutsi, mm-hmm. or were kids who had been kids they were young adults but they were all of a certain age 
mm-hmm. who had, in many cases, been orphaned by. Right. And as an American, in all my ignorance, initially, I, I would ask stupid questions like, "Yeah, you know, what are you, this or that? And they'd be like, oh, no, we don't, we don't do that anymore. Mm-hmm. And I remember, I, since then, I spent a lot of time in Rhonda mm-hmm. and the way in which from the government down to the schools, to the people, the way in which that society moved from that horrendous moment and grew and mm. shared testimony and and all this stuff, I understood that as a technology too, as a technology of awareness that unfortunately really came about because of a horrendous act. To me, what, if I were to use an analogy, you know, that the, on the piano, you have the, um, do, re, mi, fa, so, ra, mi, mi, that black key mm-hmm. is a shock. It doesn't have the same incremental space as the other keys do. Mm-hmm. You know, um, we go sharp, natural, you know, flat, blah, blah, blah. When we go into those black keys and take those incremental steps, some philosophers define that as kind of like an external shock. Like, why do we, why are, why are we not taking the, the mathematical step? in the same way that we've been taking up into that point? Does it take an external force to shift us into a different layer of Mm -hmm. approach? Mm -hmm. The external shock of, or internal shock of that horrendous tragedy, um, which is very much reality in Rwanda, um, everybody that I met from there kind of enlightened me Mm-hmm. with a way of looking at the world and society because when half of a country turns against the other half mm-hmm. and you don't finish it by simply putting, because you can't put half of a country in prison, how do you deal with that? How do you grow from that? How do you heal from that? And so... I began to observe and learn and appreciate some of the conversations and observations there also as a way of technology, as a sort of technology of consciousness and awareness. Mm -hmm. And that connects Neptune Frost in that everyone in Neptune Frost, um, the, the, the cast and crew of that film are all Rwandan and Burundian artists. Mm -hmm. Um, And so it's kind of, in many ways, it's very specific who we made this film with Mm -hmm. as specific as it is of what we made this film about. Right. Technology and a kind of technology. Right. 
for me in terms of my observation of it as an outsider and being just impressed and 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 grateful for being welcomed into a uh, uh, ongoing kind of conversation and so um i what am I saying? I guess it's it's that the idea for that film and story because it's a graphic novel as well. The graphic novel was just completed a few months ago. I was wondering, and so it'll probably yeah. come out in like a year. <laughs> so we got Crazy. so we got album. We've got yeah. film. Yeah, more than one album. Yeah, more than more than one album. Film. Yeah, you have Martin Luther King. You have uh, uh, Encrypted and Vulnerable, and then you have the soundtrack of. The, right. the film Unanimous Goldmine. So you have three albums. You have the film. Mm-hmm. You you saw the Bill T. Jones um, Motherboard Suite, yeah, which surrounds the music with the dancers mm-hmm. and um and yeah and and then the graphic novel, which was the first amazing idea, along with it being a musical. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love but it. It's that, the longest to that, execute that transmedia storytelling. I know I know how much work that is. We we try we tried a transmedia storytelling project back in 2012. Uh I, I don't know if you ever caught wind of the Copper Wire record we did. But okay. uh but uh it was an Ethiopian hip hop space opera I did with my cousin mm-hmm. McClee yes. and my bro- and my brother Elias and uh yeah, same thing. We we were going for the graphic novel, the album, the short story uh, Nettie Okorafor wrote the liner notes and yes. you know it was a whole thing that we tried to do but exactly. it is a lot of work like my god <laughs> it is a lot of work you know for me what I saw it as was a way to combine all of these varied disciplines and interests mm-hmm. so that mm-hmm. I saw it as kind of waste management in a sense mm. in that you know if I'm working on music a poem that is not necessarily to be associated with music may arise. Mm-hmm. But this having this multimedia project allowed me to take any aspect of what was created and find its place in the wheel and the spectrum of this story and the reading that I was doing and all of this stuff, it all connected. And of course, it's so connected to technology to the timeline that I'm browsing and all of these things. So everything, it was a way of connecting everything. And it is a way yeah. of, of, of kind of a economizing perspective, but even in the way that I was talking about with like what I was learning um, through spending time in, in, in Rhonda and with Anisia mm-hmm. um, and, and what I was learning about, technology and and looking forward and back right because you know we can put it in real simple terms right like people be like oh i can't start my day without coffee oh that's great where's the coffee come from right people be like oh you know i love chocolate i'm a chocoholic oh that's great where's that come where's the chocolate come from Mm mm-hmm what i you know when like you get married and it's like oh i got this diamond what I'm here to tell you is that the chocolate, the coffee, the rubber, the diamond, the Colton, the cobalt, they all come from the same place, mm-hmm. the same people. Mm-hmm. And those same people were also the same people that were enslaved, mm-hmm. that we are descendants of. So 
<laughs> the, in the context of a rape of a land um, and, and, and all this. And so, because all this is, is actually like, what yeah. I'm talking about is climate justice. Absolutely. Right? Yeah. And Absolutely. how it connects to imperialism, how it connects to capitalism, how it connects to, you know, white supremacy, how it connects to patriarchy. Yeah. These are the connections to be made. Mm -hmm. This is, you know, if we want a new green deal, we have to look at all of this and go, yeah. okay, I am dependent on a number of things that come from a particular place. Mm -hmm. We're indigenous peoples, because you might be like, well, I get my coffee from Honduras. I like my coffee from Guatemala. I will repeat, we're indigenous peoples. Right. <laughs> Absolutely. Are exploited mm -hmm. through their relationship to the land and that land ownership's relationship to the capitalist system that controls yeah. our and governments and about you. That's it right there, you know. That's you know. Is it? <laughs> <laughs> Let's just, have some coffee. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, like I feel like it's our role. Like it's our role as artists to really like shine a light on these things and 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 make the connections for people where they don't see those connections. So once you see it, you know, you can't unsee it, you know. You can't like, unsee it, but you don't know. So what, what are you gonna do, do about it? it? Right? Yeah, yeah, what are you gonna you do about it? Do with it? It's a lot. It's a lot. You gotta, it's a lot you gotta, of information. You gotta wrestle with it, though. You you have to, yeah. you know. And so that wrestling with it, yeah. is is for me. It's like you know, it it may it may not even be in the in the text of an album. You know what I'm saying? It might be in how the beat itself is programmed, right? To symbolize right. that, right? I just want you to feel it. Yes, right. So that when you hear it, you'll recognize it and go, "Oh, that sounds like." I don't know. It's familiar, you know. Yeah, it's, yeah. There's lots of approaches, but yeah, it, it's better to know. Mm -hmm, absolutely. It's better to know. It's, yeah. it, it, it's better to know. And and how else are we gonna yeah. stop it? You know, how else are we gonna yeah. stop it if we don't know? If we don't, if we, if you know, <laughs> if we don't see it, you know. And maybe we can be know? clear on the fact that maybe we're not gonna stop it. Right. Maybe we're not gonna stop it. Maybe we're just gonna shift it as it's happening so that it can happen in a more just way. Like right. we're not gonna stop the evolution of humanity no more so than we can stop the evolution of consciousness or technology as a reflection of consciousness. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But you see, when we use technology to share information that expands our spirits and understanding of the world, that's one thing. Mm -hmm. When they use surveillance, to stop us from expanding our spirits in the world, that's another, right? Right. But it's the same technology. Mm -hmm. It's what spirit we put into it, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And so there's beautiful book, Algorithms of Oppression, mm. right? I believe the author's name is Sophia Noble, um, but okay. Algorithms of Oppression is the name of the book. There's so many, Ruth Benjamin, there's so many, uh, you know, activists and, 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 and academics and scholars um, from Sylvia Winter to on to infinity of, of people who are talking about the connections between these worlds. Uh, and Angela Davis has been here all along. So many Absolutely. people have been here all along making these connections and living these connections. Um, you know, and, and yes, it all, it's all connected from, from the performance of gender to, to the performance of race, to the construct, you know, like all these things are there. Yeah. And, um, 
And yes, it may be a lot, but it's nothing to be intimidated by. Mm. You know, it's um. I, I was having a conversation yesterday where we were talking about how like learning the truth of the land that you stand on as an American, like who lived here before, you mm -hmm. know, even mm -hmm. if it's just for the sake of like being able to acknowledge that, yeah, whether internally or, or vocally or what have you. And it's, I also thought of that because we had gone to a Jewish Voices for Peace rally. Mm -hmm. Where they shut down Hollywood Boulevard, that one. Yeah, we yeah. were there and I missed the beginning of it, right? And I had questions. I was like, I wonder if they started it with a land acknowledgement. Mm -hmm. I just want, you know, I was thinking just wanted, about. You wanted to know, yeah. The connections between that, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. because what they're speaking up for in real time in Palestine is it's indigenous land acknowledgement. Exactly. Exactly. Um, people acknowledgement, right? So I was just thinking about that. And, and, and then I was like, you know, but when you, when you raise those questions, you have to go, well, wait, who was, who was in Hollywood? Right. So right. You go, oh, okay. It's the Tongva and the Quiche. Okay. Mm -hmm. And I was like, ah, oh, learning that, mm -hmm. you know, wherever you are in this country is, is probably the same energy you put into like learning and using they, them pronouns for your people that, you know, ask that of you, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know? Absolutely. And, um, yeah, it's, it's just all this beautiful, like wonder wheel of, of growth and learning to be embraced. And, and that's it. But, yeah. um, but simultaneously, it is um, a sort of fight that we wage against those in power to recognize our power. I mean, this is an interesting moment, right? Because of the fact that in this moment, those of us who are who want a ceasefire, who want a free Palestine, in fact, we are not a minority. I know. We are a majority. Right. Right. What is frustrating about this moment is that as a majority, we are not able to convince the government minority that represents us to speak up for us. Right. Right. <laughs> That's wild. Yeah. Yeah. It says a lot. It says a lot about what this country really is. You know, it lifts up the veil on everything, I feel like, you know? And that's many countries. Mm -hmm. It's not just America. Yeah. It's across Europe. I mean, it's across the Middle East, too. You know? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Know it's, a global, it's a global, it's a global, global movement. Absolutely. You know? It's global. And so, yeah. And so, anyway. Yeah. Thank you so much for your time, brother. I always... um. I always ask people this one last question. Um, what's one thing you hope everyone gets from your art and the work you're doing? Me. Mm. That's it. You <laughs> that's know? A, that's yeah, the, the, that's the, the simplest day. answer I ever got for that question. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, that's the most beautiful thing as, as someone who writes poetry or makes music or as an artist, but you never really, really have to be concerned about sounding or 
coming off like another. Mm-hmm. Like your fingerprint is your own. You know, right. that's how they got you, right? They, they got your fingerprint. They recognize you. They know who you are because of your fingerprint. Nobody else has that fingerprint. There's no two in the world mm-hmm. with that. So trust it. Trust it, right? Mm. And so that, and it's not to say that that uniqueness is so unique, you know? Like we are connected to each other in, in, in millions of ways and it's beautiful and necessary. Right. Right. And so the one thing that anyone should get from my expression is the thing that makes it my, and that's a unique instance of all of the things that have combined to make me me. And that's the loves, the fears, the doubts, the concerns the things that excite me, the things that taste good, the things that I'm allergic to or just don't like, the things that, you know, the, 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 you know, all of those things. It's, it's just that. Yeah. And it'll come and go. Right. I'm not here forever. Mm-hmm. And, um, I mean, what do you get from Nina Simone? You get her. 100%. And it's only her. That's right. You know? Yeah. And you're like, Thank you, Nina Simone, for being you in a lifetime, in your lifetime. I needed you to be you because it feeds me now. That's right. That's right. Well, yo, Saul, you feed me so much. Um, (laughs) Going back to the very (laughs) beginning of this conversation, when we first met back in the day, uh, somehow I got your email address way back in the day. I don't even remember what I sent you, but... Mm -hmm. I think it might have been a poem. I might have told you about some music. I don't know what I said to you, but I remember you said to me, now take it to the next level. And (laughs) and that sentence is something I've always remembered throughout my whole life. And I've watched you over the last 20 plus years continue to take it to the next level again and again and again. So thank you so much for your work, your friendship, being so grounded down to earth making this time, sharing your stories and, and really being fully you. We appreciate oh, you so you, much. Brother, and love, love to everybody who, who takes the time to listen to this and, and forgive me for any oversights or anything I've neglected to say or forgot to add or, or shouldn't have said or blah, 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 blah. <laughs> You're I'm, good. I'm, you know, I'm just uh, working on the moment. And, and this is a moment when uh, genocide in, in Palestine is actually being live streamed into our homes. Um, in real time. And we're making sense of it and trying to boost Palestinian voices. And, um, and, and, and that's all really like that. That's, that's, we we need this to stop. And, um, and so that's that. I want to thank my friend, the legend Saul Williams for joining me today on the worldwide underground. You can follow Saul Williams on Instagram or his official website, SaulWilliams.com. And while you're there online, be sure to check out the PalestineAcademy.com. That's a great resource, a great education hub for social media, Palestine awareness. They've got links on different people's accounts to follow. Also want to shout out Palestinian Youth Movement, Jewish Voice for Peace, If Not Now Org. Those are all Instagram accounts you can follow to get involved with different actions, demonstrations, protests happening around your city. It is still all hands on deck. 
all of us together raising our voices for a ceasefire, for an end to the apartheid state, and for a free Palestine. Appreciate y'all listening to this episode. I'll be back next week right here on the Worldwide Underground. Love to everyone who subscribes on Substack. The best way to support storytelling in this format is right there. GabrielTeodros.substack.com Be back with you soon. Much love. Peace.